This podcast is brought to you by The Province. Listening to Keyboard Kimura, the official mixed martial arts podcast of the province. Here are your hosts, Paul Chapman and E. Spencer Kite. Uh, Spencer, how's things for you this morning? Not too bad. Getting over a cold, as I know you are as well. This is what happens when when you get family in town and it's Thanksgiving, and and it should be a nice, enjoyable long weekend where you get an extra day to just spend time with people. But instead, you're you're posted up in bed, that happens. trying to recover. Yeah. Um, what does help, I guess, is that the, uh, the UFC, um, slate is, is a little clear. They've sort of, um, you know, we're in this little bit of lull between events, not, not a ton going on. We've had a couple of weekends off or a weekend off. Um, and I, you know, so now you look to fill that void and, and it's both good and bad to me, (laughs) something you've written about in the past, uh, is Ronda Rousey and this knee jerk go to her for everything from, Oh, look, Floyd Mayweather, you know, made a funny face at someone. What do you think about that? Uh, what boyfriend do you have? Um, you know, some stuff on the late night talk circuit, but then you actually get some very interesting, uh, news as we got this week from, from her mom of all people, a tape has, has come out of her, uh, talking about how much she hates her coach. And, you know, I just, to translate that, can you imagine Tom Brady's dad saying that he would want to effing run Bill Belichick over with his car, which is what Rhonda's mom said. Um, Now, this is something that seems to be historical. She says she hasn't liked him since day one when he didn't want to train Rhonda because he didn't think she was good enough. Uh, But it's something that's obviously still lingered. So is this just something that they've dealt with all along the path to glory or is this something that could cause some problems? It'll be really interesting, and I, I don't have an answer for, for where it goes because Rhonda and her mom have an amazing relationship. Obviously, they, you know, she she leans on her mom and and takes her mom advice, her mom's advice a great deal and puts a lot of stock in that. But at the same time, Edmund is more or less the one and only coach that she's had in this MMA progression where she's become the greatest female fighter of all time one of the greatest fighters on planet earth. And so it'll be interesting, especially, you know, just a couple of weeks away from UFC 193, where she has another big title defense against Holly Holm. Is it really a big title defense? Come on, Spencer. I think it is. I, <laughs> I, I'm interested. We'll get to that in a couple oh, of weeks. But... No, I'm not saying I'm not interested, but you know, <laughs> I, I have the feeling Rhonda could be up with the flu for four days before a fight and still win fairly easily. That That's the issue. Like we talk about distractions with other fighters and a lack of focus or, you know, maybe they have a bad weight cut, whatever it is. She's, she's to, to me is just so f- head and shoulders above anyone else. It ha- you know, she almost has to have a, a blown out ACL in order to make a fight, have it make a difference. Yeah, and, and that's why I don't think this will have an impact in the in the octagon on this fight. It wouldn't surprise me if somewhere down the line this had an impact on where Ronda trains or the relationship she has or, or how close her mom remains to everything she's doing. 
Because it's not like she just kind of said, yeah, I'm not a big fan. I'd like to see her go train somewhere else. There are some absolute bombs in this interview. And, and as you said, it would be akin to Tom Brady's dad saying, I'd, I'd like to run over Bill Belichick. Um, you know, she says, I'd come into the gym and he would say, how are you? And I'd say, how the bleep do you think I am? I'm in your bleeping gym and I bleep and hate you. Like, that's hardcore. And it, according to Dr. Anne-Maria DeMars, who was Rhonda's mother, it goes back to when Rhonda started. Edmund didn't necessarily want anything to do with her, didn't want to train girls. Um, she was just sort of left to her own devices and then started showing potential and started showing what we now know as world-class next-level talent. And suddenly he got on board, was in her corner. It became the catalyst for his gym becoming bigger. The interesting thing about, like, this is a very personal situation for Rhonda's mom and, and for that group. And she's saying things from a, from a personal stance, but for myself, even just looking at this sport as a journalist and, and covering this sport over the last number of years, I've had discussions with people about Edmund and about his gym and whether he's a great coach or, you know, if I could theoretically coach Rhonda Rousey and I've always maintained that I could coach Rhonda Rousey and call myself a great coach because you basically just have to tell her, yep, put your gloves on, put a mouth guard in, and you're good. And that's really it. And so you you look at sort of the results, everybody else that has gone there, thinking this is where I'm going to change my, my game up. This is where I'm going to get to the next level, like Jake Ellenberger, like Travis Brown, who have just struggled. Like you haven't seen, not even just struggled, but you haven't seen seen any progress whatsoever in their games if anything you've seen some regression and so as much as Rhonda's mom is on the personal attack it's not surprising to me to hear anybody vocally say that they don't think that Edmund is a very good coach because I'm not sold on him either and and haven't been well yeah I mean part of it is Rhonda is a special athlete but isn't Edmund I mean, I don't know if his titles changed, but he used to be just her striking coach. Now, maybe that's because she is just so otherworldly in her grappling um, that she doesn't need a coach there uh, or she has someone else that she works on that with. But, you know, as people looked at Ronda Rousey, her alleged weakness was, frankly, punching because she hadn't been, uh, I guess I, I guess you can throw kicks in there as well, because that hadn't been part of her makeup as an elite athlete. But she seems to come along pretty well on that game so are you saying that's down to her or you know does Edmund have any any sort of influence or, or expertise in that um you're right if you look at the other fighters who joined there thinking oh you know look at what he did for her um whether that's down to him or her I would say her striking game has come a long way her striking definitely has improved and and you can't take all of that away from Edmund and, and put it on Ronda but I would argue that if you took the Ronda Rousey that showed up in Strike Force and put her at any of these elite gyms with with any of the really high regarded striking coaches in the game, you would see this same development. Maybe even more. Maybe you see more of a a kicking game. Edmund is from a boxing background, so Ronda's hands have absolutely progressed to the point. You know, we saw her knockout Betch Kohale last time out. But I think if you drop her in Albuquerque and she works with Mike Winklejohn or Brandon Gibson, or you drop her in Chicago with Mike Valley or, 
down in down in South Florida with Henry Hooft or anybody at, at ATT, you're going to see that progression as well. Because as you said earlier, she is just an elite athlete. She is a next level kind of competitor and she's going to push herself to get better and focus on that side of it. So, well, he's definitely contributed. I think there's any number of, of talented striking coaches out there that could have gotten the same results with Rhonda given the same amount of time. And again, for me, that goes back to not seeing any progress, not seeing any development out of the other people that were there. Jessamyn Duke and Shayna Baszler, both more or less flamed out of the UFC. Marina Shafir hasn't progressed. Jake Ellenberger hasn't been the same fighter since going there. Travis Brown has struggled. Ronda is the one person that you really point at and say, she's done great, but everybody else hasn't. And so to me, it, it puts me in that Ronda has done. Ronda is the part of this more so than, than Edmund for her progression. You know, what's interesting though, Spencer, is there's no doubt that she's always had a great personal rivalry with uh, Misha Tate, obviously. Um, but what stands out for me from watching that Ultimate Fighter season is that as you used to see the pranks that went on between fighters that were encouraged by Dana White, you know, even down to seeing uh, Rashad and Rampage go at it and Rampage literally tear a door off its hinges and, and put holes through it because of the pranking that was going on back and forth. Um, Ronda didn't like pranks. <laughs> and Misha and her team, I think, were playing along in the spirit of the other seasons and kind of made fun of Edmund's eyebrows and Ronda went mental and that took that rivalry and that hatred to another level. So does she feel this great affinity towards him or is that just blind loyalty to whoever's in her camp? I think Ronda is a hyper loyal individual. Um, you see it, you saw it on that season. You saw the way that she connected with, as I mentioned, the likes of Shayna Baszler and Jessamyn Duke became that four horsewomen group. Um, she is, has stood by and continues to stand by with the people that were there before she became Ronda Rousey, UFC champion and superstar. Um, and the people that, that are true to her. And so I think there's some definite loyalty there. I think, I don't think it's blind loyalty. I think they clearly have a good working relationship. I think she undoubtedly would ascribe some of her success to what he has been able to do with her and, and helping her prepare but I think that's more so, you know, you come at somebody in my group, you come at somebody on my team, and I'm going to defend them tooth or nail, whether I'm, you know, their best friend or they're just somebody on my team, and, and I'm going to stand up for everybody on my team. Yeah, and we certainly saw that with uh, Betch Cohea and the, and the taking down of the four horsewomen thing. Um, interesting stuff, though, that you bring up about the this sort of creation of Rhonda's camp and obviously star names are going to draw star pupils um and, and therefore elevate the, the opinion of the coach but as you mentioned i i love the ultimate fighter season that was black zillions against att uh i think the format itself might have been a bit awkward for the tournament they like to run but to me, it was really interesting to see these two camps go against each other now you just ran through some of the top camps is there still room for small individual gyms to do well? Uh, or is the, has, has the UFC sort of evolved now in, into star coaches and star camps where really if you're a young up-and-coming fighter with a ton of potential, you're going to want to go to one of the big gyms. Um, you know, I'd throw TriStar in there as well in Montreal only because we know Rory is there and it's got the GSP legacy. 
But is is this a way that, you know, a fighter's going to have to move to one of these big centers like Albuquerque or Chicago or South Florida, you know, maybe Montreal, as you've suggested, in order to get along? Or is it still fairly open where you can be comfortable in your own situation and get good training wherever you want to go? It's really interesting because for me, it feels like we have this ebb and flow every couple of years where we get a move to a lot of super camps and a lot of people going to some of these bigger established gyms. And then we have a stretch where people are saying, you know, I need to back off and I need to be more individually focused. I need to be just sort of me and, and a tight group. And if you look at who the UFC champions are, there is sort of that mix of the two because you have people like Ronda, you have people like Joanna Jacek, um, Johnny Hendricks, not the champion now, but was the champion. He's part of a smaller team with Team Takedown in Dallas. Um, but then you also have guys like Jose Aldo at Nova Uniao. You have Conor McGregor with a big team, 40, 40 current members on the fight team at SBG in Ireland. Um, TJ Dillashaw no longer with Team Alpha Male, but very much was a part of that team coming up, which is a big collection of fighters. And so for me, I think my opinion has always been to get to that absolute elite level, unless you're a Ronda Rousey who is just so head and shoulders above everybody else being in a bigger gym where you are going to get pushed harder every day in training, where you're going to get looks and opinions from several different coaches, several different fighters. You're, you're going to learn a little more. You're going to experience more in the gym being in a larger gym than if you're set up on your own and, and you're getting the individual focus. I think there's a point where individual focus is great. And I think we've seen that with a lot of younger fighters that have risen through the ranks quickly. I think of a guy like Dustin Poirier who did very well coming out of gladiators Academy in Louisiana hit a point where he was like, okay, I'm the big, I'm the big fish. I'm not getting any better being in this, this room every day. Where can I go? Made the move to ATT, continues to, to take steps forward. Um, I think we're seeing it with a guy like Yair Rodriguez, who is now up in Chicago, is the center point of a team coached by Izzy Martinez and Mike Valley, two guys that were down at Jackson's with him when he first came to the United States. But I think at some point, you know, two, three, four years from now, we'll probably see Yair Rodriguez go back to Albuquerque because you need to be around other elite competitors once you hit a certain point so that you keep getting better, so that you keep evolving and so that you continue to take those steps forward. So I think it's the, the long way around it for me is that I think there's benefits to both, but I think ultimately to get to that championship level, you're going to see more guys from bigger camps getting there. Is it, what, what kind of money is out there available for coaches? Like, are we seeing, you know, obviously you talk about guys like Jackson Winkle John, regardless of their relationship with Jane, with Dana White, um, you know, what kind of money are these guys making? Is that a good living? Is that a growing business? Because that to me is, you know, the more you got a champion like John Jones, uh, the more people you can hook into your gym, obviously it's more lucrative for you, but it does, it does kind of, now it feeds on itself and it does become these super centers. I think the elite coaches and I've never had dollar dollar figure conversations with any of them because nobody wants to put 
what they're making completely out there for everybody. Um, I think the elite coaches do do perfectly well for themselves. They make a reasonable, respectable living, as you said. You get some some guys in there. It brings more students. It brings more people into even just the regular classes, not necessarily the fight teams. Um, the the interesting thing with a lot of these coach relationships is it starts out as percentages and then you just kind of see where everything goes. You, you hear a lot of stories about, you know, starting out the coach will say, okay, I, I get 10%. The fighter says, yep, great. And that's fine when you're making 500 and 500 because kicking 50 bucks or a hundred bucks the coach's way is no big deal. But then when you start making that big bank, suddenly give it, turn it over 10% of, a couple million doesn't seem like something you want to do. And so I think they're doing the elite guys do well. Obviously their gyms are still open. They're still, you see them all the time. They're still in this sport. They're still invested, but it's not, you know, some, they're not getting paid salaries like major league baseball managers or, you know, football managers, um, anybody in those positions. It is, it is very much a grind for coaches just as it is for fighters working their way up the ranks. And I think more of it is just passion and wanting to be there. I mean, we've had Brandon Gibson on the show a couple of times, talked to him pretty regularly. He's a guy that has a full-time job and does is a striking coach on the side because he is so in love with this sport and wants to be there helping guys evolve, helping guys learn, improving his knowledge. So yeah, if that, it's that, that's if something, it's, that's something, Spencer, that it, that baffles me again. When when you you hear that that this sport wants to be compared to um, you know, to the NFL, to the NBA, all that kind of stuff, and I know they're a long way off that, but you know, you're coaching guys like Andre Orlovsky, you know, Frank Mir. I know he's older, but you know, he was in he, he has co-mained some fight nights. Uh, certainly, John Jones, and you have to have another job like if you're working with an only I, I can't imagine the tight ends coach of the of the seattle seahawks having to go and work you know at, at a at a shipyard during the day and I, I know i'm mixing apples and oranges here and i know the gyms are independent they're not paid by the ufc but it's sort of like you'd like to think with the amount of money that's in the game that at a big gym like that you'd have a full-time staff and i agree with you a hundred percent it is it is one of those things that i think we might learn a little more about as this antitrust lawsuit that is being brought against the UFC by several former fighters continues to progress. Um, maybe it's some, I mean, I've always maintained that the UFC, the best thing they could do is get out in front of it and take some proactive steps themselves in terms of, you know, we heard Jose Aldo a couple of weeks ago talking about annual salaries. I think that would be a great idea. Yes. It's going to cost a lot of money, but it's also going to make guys be able to do this full time versus, as you said, having part time jobs, only being able to train sort of around going to work or occasionally putting it like just putting in fight camps and kind of coasting through when they're not preparing for a fight. Um, it's it, it, it's crazy to me. I mean, Brandon, I think, maintains both because He's committed to both, and he's that kind of guy. He's dedicated to both. Um, but it is, it's it's really weird when you have a sport, as you said, that is trying to be on this 
elite level with the biggest sports in the world and and out there proclaiming itself as one of the biggest, most watched sports in the world. And there are fighters and coaches and, you know, media and everybody else involved with it that have to have secondary incomes. So if you're a young guy, maybe 18, 19 years old, um, good athlete, you're intrigued by the sport that you obviously have to have some local background. You have to go to a gym somewhere and get started. Uh, do you think really if someone was serious about being uh, a fighter who would get to the UFC one day, uh, it, let's say you're in, just, it, let's keep it local rather than have to deal with the border and going down Albuquerque or wherever you wanted to go. Uh, do you think it's your best shot is to go to Montreal and look at a gym like TriStar? Do they take new guys in all the time? Is that part of the business model for them is they'll just do training with regular guys and then, you know, if you show enough potential, they'll move you up? Or do people just kind of have to find their way and stay local and do whatever you want until people kind of recognize you? I think your your best bet is always to start local. Um, just talked earlier this week for a story that will come out next week uh, with a kid that I've known for a few years now. From Zuma, his name is Alexi Argiriu. He is a 22-year-old, 2-0 lightweight, trains at Zuma under Adam Zuchek, the gym where Sarah Kaufman trains and where I pretended to, to do jujitsu for about <laughs> three months until I got hurt, of course. Um, and he's sort of in that position where he's a young kid. People in the regional circuit out this way know his name know the hype that he has, and so he's struggling to find fights. He fights next weekend, but it's been seven months since he fought, and so he's got a part-time job. He's taken a class at Camosun. He's in the gym every day trying to get better, and, and I talked to Adam yesterday about it, and we sort of got to the, well, what do you do? Like, Is there a point where you have to have a conversation with him and say, I don't know that this is ever going to happen. I think you have all the talent in the world, but maybe you need to go somewhere else. Um, gyms like TriStar will take other people in. I mean, Sage Northcutt made the trip up there this week. Uh, Randa Marcos is out there training for her next fight. Um, we've seen guys, I mean, Rory was making the trip before he moved out there permanently every so often to train, to train with George while he was still at Toshido. They've brought in a bunch of UK fighters that are fighting next weekend in, in Dublin. So it's, it's kind of a scouting and a, a mutual interest situation. Um, you can absolutely, you know, it's it's kind of an open door policy that if you're in town, you show up, hey, can I get a role? Can I get some rounds in? Can I do a class? And, and they'll look at it and then you have a conversation with Faraz and, and some of the other coaches. But I think for me, for younger guys, the, the most important starting point is just staying local and, and showing that commitment to it. And that was the thing that Adam talked about with Alexi is that, you know, from age 16, 17, 18, this is a kid that was in the gym every day. This was clearly what he wanted to do. Everything in his life was built around getting better as a fighter, getting better as a mixed martial artist. And so if you're not going to have that, if you can't show that at home where you can live at home or you can live local and close to the gym, then just packing up and moving across the country is is a little bit challenging, is a little bit tough to do right out of the gate. It just, it, it seems to me that, that it's so hard to, to know how to take it to the next level if you're if you're a local guy. And again, if you're already living in one of those centers, but I wouldn't even know where to begin in Vancouver, say, or Lower Mainland, where to go and get some, some you know, get my career started. 
Yeah, it really is. And that, that sort of is the unfortunate part about not just the lack of opportunities for UFC shows in this country, but just the lack of events in general. We've seen far too many athletic commissions price organizations out of holding shows. I mean, there aren't any events in Ontario. It is our most populous province. There should be events. You would think there would be events there every weekend, but there's not because it costs too much money because the Ontario Athletic Commission wants to have so much involvement. It's similar out here in BC. We have the odd show with Battlefield. Um, here and there, we, we get events, but... You know, guys like Alexi are going to Calgary next week for a hard knock show. And, and Calgary and, and Edmonton have been okay over the years, but even their numbers have dwindled. And so for me, it's it's frustrating because you would love to see much more investment in the grassroots level in this, in this country. I think UFC Canada would love to see more opportunities for some of these young Canadian fighters coming up to get a few more fights under their belt. Because the other part is... An American regional organization doesn't necessarily want to fly a 2-0 Canadian to, let's say, an event in Milwaukee for for 5-5 five and five, um, because that guy's not necessarily going to sell any tickets. And so it's a real struggle. It's a real grind. And, and these next couple of years are going to be really interesting to see if we can rebuild some of that regional circuit here in this country or, or what some of these young talents in this country are going to do to get to that next level. Well, now let's move on to the uh, next segment, which you like to call fight of the week. Is there anything, I know we don't have an event this weekend, so, uh, but is there any fight that's been announced or anything that, that you kind of slot in this category that we want to look at? I mean, I think the biggest fight, it, it hasn't been announced, but it's one that has been getting a lot of talk in the last couple of weeks is probably that Uriah Faber and TJ Dillashaw are going to fight at some point, almost regardless, I would think of what happens between TJ Dillashaw and Dominic Cruz come January. Um, because in the span of about three or four weeks, that relationship went from awkward to absolutely over. Um, TJ has has picked up and, and moved to join the Elevation Fight Team in Colorado. He will continue working with and resume working with Dwayne Ludwig full-time. That has just turned into a back and forth between Uriah and TJ and Bang talking about, you know, all the politics of the gym, all the decisions, everybody weighing in on whether it was the right move or the wrong move, myself included. Um, and so I think the fight that we sort of always talked about of, would you guys ever fight each other? And they both said, no, it's not something we want to do. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if in, in 2016 we saw those two fight which is crazy because it means Uriah Faber could very well get another title shot. And that's just insane to me at this point. Why is that insane to you? Um, he, oh, only, from I, the, only from the point of view that he is a good name still. Um, people know who he is. He's a great personality. I think he certainly sells the sport. And he's done whatever the UFC has asked him. And, that, and that's definitely understandable. And, and that definitely will get him bigger opportunities. It's insane to me because we've seen Uriah Faber in championship bouts many times in the UFC and the WEC. Once he lost his title, he has been unsuccessful there. He's coming off a loss to Frankie Edgar. He has a fight with Frankie signs coming up in a, uh, in a couple of months at UFC 194 in December to then sort of 
re-inject him into the title conversation in this division where he's already shown that he's kind of lost a step, that he can't beat those elite guys just because of this personal issue and this political team issue is crazy to me, but, but it's the way the UFC works. It's the way this business works because it's not straight sport. It is sports entertainment. Sorry, anybody that doesn't like that because it's, it's what the WWE calls professional wrestling, but mixed martial arts very much is sports entertainment. So a guy like Faber is going to be able to get himself back in that mix through this drama and through this situation when results don't necessarily merit it. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. Sometimes it's a matchup sells tickets. That's that's what the matchup becomes. It's not we. I mean, how many examples do we have we seen of that in the last four months where someone believes they're next in line and no, sorry, you're going to go here because we're trying to sell tickets. Um, and I think it's also obviously a product of the the lighter weight classes where you can have a name but a guy that you're not putting anywhere near heavyweight title contention or light heavy or maybe even middle or welterweight and they've still got a puncher shot but as good as Faber has been you're right you need the all-around game you still need the speed um you can land a clean shot at those lighter uh weight classes and it doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to knock a guy out with one lucky shot yeah and I think just looking at sort of his last four fights whether you think the fight with Hennenborough was stopped early or not Hennenborough was clearly the quicker of the two and getting the better of those exchanges he beat Alex Caceres but it wasn't as dominant as you would think Uriah Faber versus Bruce Leroy would have been Um, Cisco Rivera won the first round from him at UFC 91 before there was an eye poke and a finish and then Frankie Edgar absolutely outclassed him back in in May in the Philippines. And so I think we've seen Faber isn't necessarily in that elite group anymore. Maybe he, you know, maybe he comes out and he, he just trucks Frankie signs and changes our opinion. But for me right now, he's, he's a notch below that elite group at bantamweight or featherweight, wherever he wants to fight. And so to just shuffle a guy in there because of, I mean, it's, it's the old debate that we've had many times over to shuffle a guy in there because of his name, because of his drawing power, regardless of where he necessarily fits in the pecking order is always a little bit annoying, frustrating, surprising to me, I guess. Interesting theme in this podcast, Spencer, because, you know, I look at this sort of situation that has happened before. And I think notably of Rashad Evans, who um, frankly got his feelings hurt that John Jones uh, as the young guy <laughs> got a title shot before him, uh, leapfrogged him and just never stopped. And then there were there were hurt feelings like, oh, we said we'd never fight each other. And I think that's fine to say when you're, you know, you're nowhere near each other in the rankings. But team teammates shouldn't matter when you're, you know, if your ultimate goal is to win a title and one of your teammates has a title, that's so be it, right? You, you, you can't put your own career on hold. But we saw him leave his team. And frankly, he's never been the same since. Um is this a mistake for TJ Dillashaw? I mean, this is a guy who, when he won the title, was a huge upset. And no one really had him um, being the dominant guy in the division. Now, he's since gone on to prove that. He's really been untouched since he did win win the title. But is this a mistake for him to leave the team that elevated him to that status? No pun intended on going to <laughs> Colorado and elevation. I don't think it is. I mean, I think TJ was a guy coming into the UFC on the Ultimate Fighter, um, starting with that group at Team Alpha Male that everybody sort of looked at as 
another one of these young stud college wrestlers that will transform and grow into a title contender at some point because that's just what happens with with a lot of these guys that have come into that gym lately. You look at Chad Mendez, you look at Joe Benavidez, uh, Lance Palmer in World Series of Fighting, TJ's right in that group as well. Um, but the one thing that, that sort of took him to that next level was the addition of Dwayne Ludwig, was the amount of time that they spent together figuring out the style that TJ now employs of stick and move and, and using his footwork and varying his attacks. And so he had been making the trip to Colorado to continue working with bang over the last year since Dwayne was, was ousted from team alpha male as their head coach. Um, and I, for me, we sort of, you mentioned guys should never, should never worry about not fighting their teammates at the expense of their own career. We talk all the time about the the small window these guys have to make money. We talked earlier about it's crazy that these guys, you know, coaches have second jobs and some of these guys can't make ends meet. If somebody is willing to pay you a salary to go and train and you get to train and, you know, pay for the lease of your house for a year and you get to train with the coach that, that took you to that next level. And it's not like he's going to train with a bunch of scrubs and in some garage in Colorado, the muscle farm facility is ridiculously state of the art, massive, everything you could want under one roof. To me, it's the right decision because he does have a short window to remain at the top of this sport and to make as much money as possible as champion. And if he feels that going to Colorado and working with Dwayne Ludwig and the guys at elevation, Leister bowling, Lauren Landau, the strength and conditioning coach, is what's going to work for him, then then more power to him. And and who am I to say, oh my God, this is this is a crazy decision. Uh one last comment for me on this not not on that sort of stuff, but on on Faber that we've been talking about. It was interesting. I saw him talk about Chael Son or not Chael Son and Freudian and stuff there about Connor McGregor uh and how it would be great for the sport if he actually beat Aldo. Now Faber, again, he's got this great personality, which I think is why he ends up in such a prominent position on so many things. Um, reminds me a little bit of Ben Henderson, right? Good soldier, willing to do whatever they ask him and, and great in front of the camera. But he, you know, he went into this whole thing supposedly having all this heat with McGregor. He's one of these guys that really didn't like him, didn't think he proved himself. Now it seems like he kind of likes him, even though the ultimate fighter is supposed to build these guys up to hate each other. And again, I mentioned Chael Sonnen because it's very similar to me that had this this persona. And as you talked about, Spencer, this sports entertainment element of it, you know, we'll see you in Cleveland, you know, that type of stuff. But ultimately, you know, there were guys that kind of ended up like Chael Sonnen admitted. He kind of liked John Jones, uh, even though he was calling him out to get a title shot. I just found that really interesting that Conor McGregor is supposed to be this, you know, ultimate badass who calls guys out, you know, maybe you don't believe, maybe it's too much hype and not enough ability. Yet here you have Faber who's put in this position to oppose him and now seems to be coming around and kind of respecting him a little bit. Yeah. And I think Faber is a guy that has always had a very smart approach to the business side of this sport. Um, you know, he, he isn't just the the team leader at Team Alpha Male. He is the guy that put it together. He is the owner of of the team. He, you know, is is part of the management company that represents some of these fighters. He's always had other business interests as well. And so he recognizes how much financial potential there is 
with Conor McGregor as champion because so many people are interested in seeing him fight, whether it's to win or to get his head knocked off. And he sort of said, like, the big fights might be with Conor as champion. And so for my guys that are coming up in that division and my guys that are there and even maybe myself, what's the bigger fight? Like, we've seen... Chad Mendez against Jose Aldo a couple of times. And yeah, they were, you know, the last one was a great fight. The first one was an interesting fight, but it wasn't anywhere near as big or as lucrative as Chad's fight with Conor McGregor was. And so I think Faber is, is just a smart dude that really gets all the elements of this sport and has done a very good job of, of making the right decisions, taking the right steps, making the right moves not just for himself, but for the guys around him. And so he sees, you know, the, the amount of attention that Connor gets versus what Jose Aldo has done over his six or seven years at the top and just recognizes that, listen, whether I like this guy or not, we have very different styles and personalities. He's great for the sport in terms of the attention he brings, in terms of potential revenue for everybody in it, and especially my guys that are climbing the ranks trying to trying to fight for that title. So... I think it's a little bit of, you know, I think everybody has a certain amount of respect for Connor for what he's been able to do. He usually just kills that by continuing to talk and say ridiculous things and try to pick fights with everybody. <laughs> and I think Faber is just sort of at that point where it's like, listen, you can't knock the guy because everything that we've asked him to do, everything that people have said, well, he needs to do X, Y, and Z. So far, he's gone out and done it. Uh, now we move into the last portion of the podcast, the championship rounds. What do you got for this? I was thinking maybe we got a champion, Daniel Cormier, saying, I need to step away from this for a little bit. Yeah, we, we've got a champion in D.C. going on the Anik and Florian podcast on Monday. Kind of just talking about not sure when John's going to be back. He needs a break. Um, fought three times this year. He fought John Jones. He fought Anthony Johnson. He fought Alexander Gustafson. Two of those fights were five-round affairs that were long, grueling affairs. The fight with Rumble was only three, but it was short notice. It got blocked early. He's 36 years old. He had three fights <clears throat> excuse me, in 10 months, and so he wants a little bit of break. He talked about it at the post-fight press conference in Houston saying, you know, I'm, I'm 36. I came to this sport late. I've been a competitor my whole life. Do you guys know how many fights I've had in the UFC? And he's fought seven times in two years, which isn't quite, you know, Cowboy Cerrone, Neil Magny numbers, but it's still a lot for a 35, 36-year-old guy who's cutting weight, who's had issues cutting weight in the past. And so I think for me, this is, and I said it to you off air as we were sort of prepping for this, I think there's a little bit of gamesmanship in it for DC of, of not trying to stay right in the limelight and get hustled into another fight. I think there's a little bit of, of waiting to see what happens with John because that's very much the fight that makes sense for him next and that I'm sure he wants next. But there's also just, you know, being 36 and needing a couple, needing to take a couple months. I mean, we, we had Henry Cejudo, who is 28, I believe, talking about this when he had been offered Joseph Benavidez. They wanted to do it in September. They wanted to do it in October. And he said, listen, I've already fought three times in the last eight months. I need one extra month. I need November. Let's do November in Mexico. That's when I can be back. And so 
it for me is actually really good to see some of these guys taking a little bit more responsibility, having a little bit more willingness to say, I need to put three months where I'm not prepping for a, a fight between this fight and my next fight and, and taking that, you know, five to six months to prepare, especially when your guys at that championship level, I respect the hell out of Demetrius Johnson for how much he fights and how active he wants to be. Same with Ronda Rousey. But at the same time, I understand these guys sort of doing whatever it takes to a protect their body and b make sure they get the best fight that makes the most sense for them going forward. You know, it, it, what I did find interesting is it's one thing absolutely to kind of say, look, I've fought three times this year. I've fought three top guys, which is something John Jones did. And actually his, his manager had referenced the fact when he ran into trouble that this has been a grind for him, that facing, you know, hot contender after hot contender, you know, that's, I guess that's what the champion does and it does wear you out a little bit. But much like Robbie Lawler, time to see, you know, look, now I have the power, so I need a little bit of a break. But I did find it interesting that DC referenced his own age. I mean, we do know that he's 36. He did enter the UFC late. Uh, all all athletics are, are a young man's game, as they said, even with, you know, Anderson Silva. I remember Joe Rogan saying it. Father time is undefeated, and you can look great into your mid-30s, maybe even your late 30s, but sooner or later, it can happen quickly. Um, is interesting, though, to see him reference that, he is 36 and that it's worn him down a little bit. You're right there. That fight with John Jones is out there and that will be the big one for him. If he wins that fight, maybe that's his white whale. And I would sure we would, I'm sure we would see a trilogy fight then. Um, but I think he may also be looking because considering DC's done very well in broadcasting, he may even be looking at, okay, where is my exit here? Where's my end game? And I think that's the other part of it. I mean, he, he sat down at the presser uh, in Houston Everybody else cleared out. He came out after getting checked out and and needed help up onto the stage because he jacked up his foot a little bit. And the first words out of his mouth were, this is the most beat up I've ever been in my life. And then he, he talked at that press conference about being 36, about not being sure how much longer his body is going to let him do this. It's never going to be a will thing for Daniel Cormier. He is going to be that 50-year-old dude that is in the wrestling room at AKA four days a week, putting guys through the paces, tossing kids on their head. It's going to be a, can I physically do this thing that, that eventually stops him. And as you said, he is fantastic on television. He is a great speaker and presenter and host, and he can move into that segment of things full time, like his buddy, Brian Stan, whenever he wants. And so I think he's kind of just plotting out the next, couple of years, maybe even the last couple of years of his athletic career to make sure that for the damage that he puts his body through and for the effort that he puts his body through, he's maximizing his return because as much as Ryan Bader has probably earned a title shot at this point, um, probably done enough to merit one, given that DC has beaten Anthony Johnson and Alex Gustafson, that doesn't bring in nearly as much money for Daniel Cormier as that rematch with John Jones does. So holding out, holding out until that one comes together is probably the right step. And it doesn't hurt that you can have some facts and some stats to back it up. Well, you know, again, tie together some of our conversations today. Um, UFC is still a fairly new sport. And we talked about some of these sort of legendary name coaches, uh, 
we don't know a lot of them from the USC. It's like having a, you know, a head coach in the NFL who never played in the NFL. And there were certainly many of those um, guys like Bill Belichick who, who made their name in the college game and, and, you know, have a playing background obviously. But I, I wonder when we will start to see some of these fairly prominent names when they pull out, you know, we've seen guys like Rashad Evans be part of an ultimate fighter coaching team, but saying, you know what, my future is in coaching and I am going to be in the gym when I'm 50, 55, 60, teaching this to young guys. Yeah, it's, it, it is really interesting. I think DC is a guy that I could definitely see going that route just because, as I said, competing his entire life, Olympic athlete, um, loves that side of things, but he also has the, the broadcast side of it as well that he could go to. Um, I think it'll be more the it's interesting for me it 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 always seems like the guys that don't necessarily aren't necessarily elite end up becoming the better coaches and becoming we see it in all kinds of other sports you know that jays game yesterday both coaches are are washout catchers basically had a cup of coffee in the bigs but then went into coaching right away um we see it in all kinds of in all kinds of different sports and so i think we'll we may not see the big name guys get there. There may be a few, but I think it's going to be more the middle of the pack guys that couldn't ever, didn't necessarily have that elite athleticism or the elite skill to become a champion, but are so analytical about it, are so smart about the sport that those are the guys that we'll see rising through the ranks. I mean, that's how, that's what prompted Brandon Gibson to get into coaching is he was, you know, an amateur kickboxer, had a had an injury in the gym, knew he wasn't going to come back and be the same fighter that he was, knew it wasn't something that he was going to do long term, but went to Greg and Wink and said, listen, I'm crazy about this sport. You know, I want to be here. What can you what can you do to help me stay involved and become a coach and and progress in this sport? Started off coaching, you know, teaching, teaching kids classes and kids striking classes and now here he is one of the best striking coaches in the sport so i think it's going to be guys like that more so than guys like dc but it will be interesting to see as you said as the sport gets older where some of these guys sort of fall when their careers end one last quick thing for me um just got me thinking when you talked about dc saying this is the most beat up he's ever been you know certainly alexander gustafson um people will you look at the performance against John Jones, you look at the performance against Daniel Cormier, and then certainly a beating he took against uh, Rumble Johnson. He has lost three of his last four, and those were three very, very punishing fights, and that has to take your toll on anyone. Which brings me to what I wanted to raise with you. Have you heard anything about Rory? I know we're still obviously a couple of months away before they're starting to even look at a mismatch from him because of that epic fight he had in July. Um, but I would hope, be hoping that he's healed up nicely, but it's been very quiet around him. Even when you were down in Houston, was there, was there, yeah, I know Johnny Hendricks was supposed to fight and Rory's sort of involved in that conversation. Any news on Rory and how he's doing? Had a couple off the record conversations, uh, nothing to confirm, but it looks like he'll probably be back in the very early stages of 2016. He popped up. If you go and check out the UFC on the fly that is up this week. Uh, for Joe Duffy, who is fighting on the Dublin card next week. He popped up in that because they come and film at TriStar where Joe Duffy trains. Um, the nose looks better. I mean, he's still got a little <laughs> cut across the bridge of it. I don't know if that's new or old, but it looks better. He looks he looks back to normal. And so I think they want to just be 100% sure that he's fully healed, that he's ready to go 
before they make any kind of announcement. But we'll see Rory in the first quarter of 2016. I guarantee that. Well, you know, Dana did come out and say that fight could change him forever. (laughs) So it's a wonderful thing to do to uh, one of your main attractions after the best performance of his career in a legendary fight is basically tell the press that you think it could ruin his career, despite how heroic (laughs) you think he he was. But, you know, it was a great fight, and I think people are anxious to see him get back in action, but certainly they want to see him healthy first. Yeah, they those very much are the kind of fights that, and that was one of the big questions that everybody asked me coming out of it, is how does he come back from it? And I maintained then and I maintain now. There are very few guys in this sport that would embrace that kind of fight and relish that kind of fight and come back from it better than Rory McDonald. I mean, I talked to him, I talked to Faraz about it after the fact, and, you know, Rory said it was the greatest night of his life. He Loved embraced it more it. than anything, yeah. which is, you know, crazy to most people, but it shows you that there's no part of him that is now, you know, cowering in a corner, not sure if he wants to come back. It was a moment that he truly embraced and truly enjoyed. So I think he'll be back and, and just as good, if not better, when we see him next. Great stuff, Spencer. I think we'll leave it there for this week. So hope you feel better. You as well. Yeah. You as well. <laughs> and, um, you know, of course, you can follow Spencer on Twitter at Spencer Kite, K-Y-T-E. Uh, follow him at KeyboardCamara.com, but he, he writes uh, various other places. You can find that through his Twitter account. So thanks for your time this week, Spencer. You've been listening to Keyboard Kimura, the official mixed martial arts podcast of the province. Read the Keyboard Kimura blog on theprovince.com, follow them on Twitter at Keyboard Kimura, or visit them on Facebook at facebook.com slash Kimura. Kimura.